Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. I'm your host. I am thrilled today <laughs> to be welcoming an old friend who is a brilliant transnational educator or mediator between transnational educators, Richard Young. And we're going to have an interesting conversation about international education. Hi, Richard. Hello, John. How are you? I'm doing well. So you're based in Barcelona, right? Correct. I've been here 16 years in the Catalan capital. Give me a little bit of background as to how you got into what you're doing these days. You kind of run interference between a lot of international organizations. And maybe I should start with this, actually. We're not really calling it international education anymore. We're calling it transnational education, or for those of us in the know, TNE. And I'm curious where that name comes from and how that in your mind differs from international. Okay, well, transnational education, sort of an umbrella name, it's sort of a cool umbrella name that came up maybe seven, eight years ago. For any education that's delivered in a country other than the country in which the awarding institution is based. So students mm -hmm. living in New York studying for a degree in a university in Dubai, that would be classic transnational education. And how did you get involved? How did I get involved in it? It's, it's something I've always been interested in and something I've championed from my, my early days of working in higher international education consultancy. And uh, I started working with an art school in London, a very famous art school called Central St. Martins. And that was 11 years ago and was setting up international courses for them between London and New York, London and Copenhagen, London and Milan, London and Istanbul. And that's how practically I got involved in it. And you've always had a, a penchant for the arts and design generally. I'm curious whether an architecture, I mean, I feel like whenever I spend time with you, when I have the pleasure of spending time with you, you point out design things that I don't even notice. Did you, were you connecting the dots on those or was it more a coincidence that you personally? I think I was, I think it was that they merged because, you know, my studies are actually uh, agricultural science at the Royal Agricultural University. And how, how that became more getting more involved in my interest in art design and architecture. I think it was, was a progression that surprises some people. But I'm very happy dealing with, with things of an aesthetic nature. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I don't see you working with corn and soybeans. Generally speaking, is arts, creative education and design education, especially on the transnational front, receiving going through a resurgence, flat-out growth, a decline? I would say uh, in terms of transnational education is something I refer to mainly from a UK perspective because the UK has been a principal exporter of it, I guess, along with the United States. But the students involved in it are uh, going to be from big uh, research universities like NYU, Oxford, Cambridge. You know, they might have an outpost in Dubai or in Jakarta. There are lots of different places where transnational education can take place. I know NYU is one of the biggest universities to start dealing with it. They have a big outpost in Shanghai where you are. But there are lots of different institutions and players. As I said, it, it's to define what transnational education is, you have to look at how the different kinds of delivery of transnational education takes place. Well, so explain that to me a little bit, because you mentioned, you mentioned the United States and the United Kingdom being major players historically and maybe even today. Is that because of the uniqueness of the product? Is that because of some cultural assumptions or cultural priorities for, for design and creative education? Or is there 
some other, I don't know, just are they just offering a better product? Uh, is there, what are the reasons uh, why those are kind of the major players? Okay, and yeah, are they so the historically players? there is this belief that a British education or an American education is a good one and uh, developing countries or countries like China and India, um, Indonesia, Malaysia, these are all countries that benefit from being able to their students, their parents are willing to pay for a degree that has a bit of paper saying, you know, I studied at NYU in Shanghai, I studied at Cambridge in Dubai, something like this. So that there is there is value in it. It's something that's growing slowly, whether it's going to continue to grow. There are predictions that more and more, and more new edu- overseas education campuses are going to open. Bran- branch campuses is just one part of it, you know, where a university takes takes the lead in opening a whole physical structure in, in, in another com- country is a very expensive way to go about it. And when they do that, there's been lots of stories, horror stories of lots of money being lo- lost. But some of the early ones, I think Nottingham, Nottingham University from the UK is in, uh, I think it's in Ningbo in, in China. You might want to correct me where they are in China. Ningbo, Ningbo, yeah. yeah. Ningbo. And uh, they were one of the trailblazers in, do, in, in setting up a campus abroad, and they've done well, but other universities haven't done some well. Instead of operating a whole physical campus, others will just use some joint courses or have some sort of memorandum of understanding. Maybe it could be at a governmental level, like between Egypt and the UK, or it could be just be at a local level between two different universities in two different countries. So what are some of the horror stories? The horror stories of people doing joint ventures in, in China or India and, and money disappearing. I mean, and students not turning up and buildings not existing or buildings being substandard and students not being happy and claiming their money back and things closing. It's had a bit of a tainted reputation. And I think that people going into the whole branch campus look is less is less popular than it was. But it's still there. It's still happening. I think that a lot of people took a hit. And um, there were a lot of stories about NYU at the time, whose provost was very keen on the idea of transnational education. A lot of his faculty weren't as excited about it because of the terms and conditions and contracts and uh, faculty being flown out to where it was Singapore or Shanghai to impart courses. That caused a lot of strife when there should have been more investment back home. He was empire building abroad. So let me ask you this. What's your take on how valuable design and creative international education or transnational education, how, how valuable is it for the future? I mean, the, the, the question that comes to mind, I, for, I, I assume when most people think about future jobs is, you know, does Google need more mathematicians or artists? Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm biased. Do we want more mathematicians or poets or, or artists? I mean, I've, because of my, my my creative leanings I'm, I'm the one who's going to say let's support kids curiosity let's let's support their creative imaginative play from an early age because i think the way i think in the uk and the us it's it's so prescriptive all the learning happens towards these set exam pieces when people are not allowed to think outside the box enough and when i meet artists and designers i just you know the the, the freedom of their minds is so much more interesting to me than, than mathematicians. I'm not saying I don't. You know, I'm I'm uh, obviously in awe of mathematicians. Mathematicians are some of your best friends. Not not that I've ever met Pythagoras or uh, or um, Aristotle or someone like that. But I would have liked to meet Alan Turing. He sounded like a more interesting kind of guy. But I guess I, I'm more le- leaning towards 
Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson or Shakespeare or Chaucer. We have a mutual friend, Tom McGrath, who who says that in the future there are going to be no jobs. So he's kind of the pessimist view of any jobs. But I think uh, if you look at the, the, the World Economic Forum and the other kind of, I don't know, I guess I kind of call them crystal ball reports about the future of work. And again, it's not that education's purpose is necessarily to prepare one for work, but definitely that's, I'm sure, a consideration, especially when parents are dropping big bucks for a, for a degree. Most of the reports you read today about the future of work kind of say that creative and design design education is actually very high on the list of jobs that will exist in the future. The assumption is it's going to be kind of difficult to replace those kind of creative jobs with robots, or if you do, you're going to replace them more slowly. What do you think about that? Precisely. I think I think critical, think, critical thinking and creative thinking is very hard for computers to be able to emulate. I'm sure it's going to get better, but I think there'll always be a place for art. There'll always be a place for something that is done, the connection between brain, eye, and hand. All those skills, they're going to be hard to replace in the, by the tech world. Maybe we can start with the source of the problem today a little bit. Given that education, like every other product or service in the world, is in a global market, how is education a global market and how have you seen it change? That's, that's a good question because if we use the word TNE again, transnational education, each government views education as part of their soft power armory. In the UK, you've got the British Council. In France, you've got the Alliance Francaise. In Germany, you've got an organization called DAAD, the German International Exchange. And all these organizations have a renewed focus on delivering something that is almost intangible and, and soft power. Fr France has always been good at it, and I think the British Council aren't far behind. So promoting the language and culture of their specific countries. If you like to confront the new players on the block, which are China and Russia, who have also been studying very carefully and investing in countries and not, not just sending pandas abroad in the case of China, but Russia investing in TV stations in the UK. And we could get onto the whole idea of social media and how that works, but that's a step further down the line. I think governments are very interested in using education as part of their armory. Yeah, education definitely serves a cultural replication function. And certainly it it serves a nationalist function at a certain level. No country is going to present a history that's counter to its national interest. And to a large degree, and for the majority of students who go through the majority of schools worldwide, they're going to get a traditional education from their local government or whatever agency or, or entity provi provides it. How does that differ with transnational education? Because I assume the people who self-select into a transnational forum are more open to difference in their background and education, even if it's those who are simply looking for, like you said, wealthy Indian or Chinese people who want to send their child to get a U.S. or U.K. degree for the brand recognition. I assume even they are looking for something a little bit more than the simple local education that the national governments or local governments are going to provide. How do they get involved and how, do, how are they distinct from other students? I think I think because of the internet, they're searching. I think they and their parents are very brand aware. I think they they believe uh, that Ivy an Ivy League education or a Russell Group education, which is the UK equivalent of Ivy League, will will give them some head start in the world, and that would be a way to get involved in international company, to travel, to make friends, to network. So it's worth paying a premium for. And if you don't have the opportunity to go abroad and study in London, Oxford, New York, Chicago, the next best thing is to do it near a home or do it online or go to a neighboring country to do it. In terms of uh, solutions, what do you see as 
the link between traveling, actually getting up and leaving home, and learning. That, that, that's a very good thing because I think there's this uh, there's definitely a shift towards it. And if you look at a, a company like Minerva, a San Francisco-based Minerva, it's an online learning platform basically where the students travel between like seven different cities and are taught in virtual classrooms. So the experience of travel and learning must help them. If they're sitting in a classroom in Berlin or Buenos Aires or Taipei or London and they're having classes with professors back in San Francisco or somewhere in the States or maybe another country, the experience of being in that other country must give them something more. The real life experiences, the hands-on, the culture, again, going back to the soft power, the cultural aspects of each of those countries that have been chosen makes, in the case of this Minerva company, you know, they had like sort of 20,000 applications for 385 places. They you have know, the acceptance rate of less less than half. Yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about Minerva, yeah. Yeah, so they have an acceptance rate of like less, less than 2%, so it's way lower than any Ivy League. So they've created this sort of kudos with this company, and a lot of other people have tried to copy it because they were one of the trailblazers and they got the investments for so they got the investment from, from Chinese investors to go on with it. And all the reports are, and uh, what I read from the students, so it's, it's very successful. And it's supporting their curiosity to travel, to learn, to network, to meet like-minded people. And what they take back home and where they go and end up working, all those experiences in those cities from different countries, from Argentina or India or China or Korea, stands them in perfect stead for their future. It's like an ongoing sort of internship. You know, there's there's a tech part of it. It's the aptitude and the, the, the efficiencies they have being having no physical classroom, I think frees a lot of boundaries and lets them think outside the box. So they have no physical classrooms. No. Students stay in a given city or location for a pretty indeterminate period of time, right? They're allowed to move fairly freely and everything is done online. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, everything is done online. That's it, yeah. I hear the appeal is that kind of freedom. Is Minerva a university or is it a experience? What is it calling itself? It's a school. It's a school of a kind, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a traveling school, if you like. But it's basically an online platform because everything is taught from the mothership in San Francisco. And they travel around and have morning classes, then afternoon experiences outside the classroom. So are you seeing any other any other experiences or schools compete with them in, in a way that's and, and offer and offer an experience that's of equal popularity? I think in, in the world, I mean Minerva, I think there hasn't been any exact copies. I think it's an expensive thing to set up and they, they got a lot of backing to be able to do what they do. And their way of restricting the the admissions and the acceptance is 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 creating more interest, if you like. What is more common are just basic platforms for learning, whether they could be something like uh, General Assembly in the US or Hyper Island in Sweden, these digital learning companies where everything is done online and the bricks and mortar of a traditional university just evaporate along with all the costs and the, the crusty tweed professors with the smoking their pipes. All that becomes a thing of the past. So their costs are low. They bring in people from industry, tech, digital industries, and courses are taught 100% online that fit in with people's working lives or their location. That's the future, as there will be more and more universities merging or closing, and so much more stuff will move online. On one level, it seems that what that opens up is the possibility of, of having experiences virtually over distance where one does not need to travel 
and one can stay home and have that experience. And Minerva, kind of contradictorily, is doing exactly the opposite. It's letting, it's encouraging movement or even requiring it. I'm not sure about that. Is it requiring students to live in different places? And then... Yes, there's no other way. You have to move around. You have to move around. Yeah. So in Minerva's case, they're, they're suggesting that the, the experience of moving around is at least as important, if not more important, than the online learning platform, which one could do from anywhere. Yeah, I think it's the combination of both. And remember, it's, it's sort of it's university age kids. So the other companies I'm talking about are more for postgraduate studies or people who are in work. So there, there are two different audiences. The Minerva model, if you want to call it that, is one that could be expanded. And I think there's going to be some other people with a lot of investment behind them who'll come along and do something similar. There's, there's a demand for it. People don't want to sit in one place in one room and study anymore. If you have the choice to sit, stay on a campus for four years or move around, if you had that possibility to move around, you'd probably take it. A lot of people would anyway, the more curious ones. The programs that you're seeing, the, the movement that's happening with kids doing more online, really their formal studies online, have you gotten any feedback as to how that works in terms of the quality of the education that they're receiving? That's, it. that's a good question. You know why? Because it, it's like, what's Minerva? Like something like four years old. So people, that the first graduates are really only just coming out now. So, so the, the data available for people to give feedback for these things it's, it's so fresh it's so new that you you haven't got enough data to support it apart from a full sort of youtube and a few comments on online forums about what these kids have got out of it some of the concerns that we're hearing from professional educators certainly at the lower levels in high school where there's any talk of kind of more digital or online or even independent learning is that you're going to get a bunch of high school boys or maybe 18 year old boys 19 year old boys who are going to sit around and if they're given freedom they're going to play video games and they're not going to get the work done. It seems like given the, as you mentioned earlier, the raw number of people who are doing many more online programs, exactly the opposite's happening. There's such demand for it because it allows them the freedom to study when they want to study and play games when they want to play games. Yeah, which which I think is fine. It's just that let's get kids away from screens, everyone's saying, let's get kids away from screens. But at the same time, a lot of the games may help in people in remote locations. There's a sort of, there's a structure, there's a focus to it, there's story and narrative. I think it's good for social groups, but you have to support their curiosity through all this. And I think that um, if you can do that online and include some sort of presential aspect to it, so that they can dip into something to go somewhere to have physical contact with these people as well. I think that's the blended part seems seems more logical to me than wholly online. But people's lives these days and where they want to travel, where they can travel, where they can get visa free travel to are all influencing factors in this. Let's talk about global investment a little bit. How are you seeing that the education sector generally and its deregulation internationally in many, many countries, how do you see that the, the many countries opening up what's possible in education and allowing new platforms, new funding mechanisms, and even private investment? How are you seeing that affect what's happening in transnational education? Yeah, I mean, that, that's very interesting, but it goes back to the thing about the branding. So are they going to be in the future? What's it going to be? There's going to be like... 10, 20 big brands, Oxford, Cambridge, and the like, 
And then what's the rest going to be? Probably some sort of digital companies. So what happens to all those other campuses? Are they just going to be turned into some sort of recreational thing where people go now and again? The, the investment is, is very strong. Even I was reading the other day about the, the money out of Beijing, something like 3,000 ed tech companies alone in Beijing, more than 1,000 in Shanghai also. There's a lot of investment to online education coming up because these buildings, these big monoliths, they're, they're not going to survive in the future. They're going to be turned into something else, maybe dorms, you know. They're not going to be used for teaching as we know it. So all that real estate, what does it become? A resort, a hotel? It's all moving online. And there's definitely a case for art and design education, maybe some music education, visual arts, drama, dance media arts that, that can't be moved online so much. So I think in my particular field, creative arts education will be one of the slower ones to move wholly online. Although I have a, a friend at Parsons and uh, he's teaching, he's living in Denver now and he's teaching online students in New York through amazing, there are amazing new platforms you can use to teach students arts and design education. Let's break the world down a little bit because I think it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about what different countries are doing and where the trends are. Where are you seeing the big investments and the big investments, maybe in education generally, what you're perceiving, and especially what you're, where you're seeing the big investments in creative and design education? You've probably heard of the, the MOOCs, the massive online open courses. There's been a lot of investment in those. A lot of the companies that have been at the cutting edge, companies like Skillshare and Udemy, Coursera, they've put a lot of money into these platforms and having university programs on listed on their platforms. And they're thinking of creative ways on how they're going to be able to make some money out of this a lot of it's a lot of statistics are what about people who start these online these free online courses that don't continue with them there's a high dropout rate where is the investment coming from the investments coming from people who are looking to capture more of an online audience from, from developing countries i would say and the money's coming from london from new york from beijing shanghai definitely i would say beijing shanghai more k-12 education Whereas London, New York, California, it's more a more higher education. Corporate education is is an area that away moving away from business schools to teaching online. I, there's a company that I've been looking at into the moment called Corp Academy. I mean, they're based in Switzerland. They do online trading programs for L'Oreal. Um, I think that's the sort of company that's going to be in the future. There are going to be these online companies that dip in and out of major corporations, and they're going to it's going to restructure the whole world of business education in the future. You've mentioned blockchain to me on a couple of occasions. What do you see as the effect or the impact of blockchain on any of these systems? Yeah, block, blockchain's an interesting one. It's a really early one. I got I got contacted by these guys from Cambridge just recently about if I could help them set up their blockchain university. And they're getting a lot of positive press. It's disruptive education, isn't it? It's, it's the more ways you can find to, to break with the crippling slow admin of the university process, whether it's enrollment, whether it's setting up transcripts, awarding certificates. There's so much lentitude and slowness in the system, and as well as regarding payment and stuff. So the, the blockchain does eliminate a lot of those problems. And I think, again, it, it's so early days, who knows where it's going to go. But it, it's definitely interesting one to watch. The, the, what, the people that contacted me were called Wolfson University in Cambridge. And what's interesting about what they're doing is that they're, they're existing Cambridge dons. And they, they're trading off the name of their current university, Wolfson, uh, their current college at the University of Cambridge, 
to be able to launch their own business, seemingly with the approval of Cambridge University. That's definitely one to watch staying in the UK. How are you seeing Asia in particular? And you've, you've mentioned China and India a few times, and, and I guess China in particular, Asia in general, and, and, and China in particular. How do you see their kind of ascendance economically as part of the equation of what's happening more now than it used to be? Yeah, I think that, again, they're, they're seeing what's happening. They're, they're smart. They're, they're realizing that there's a there is a way that they can keep a lot more of their students in their country without letting them to travel. So maybe that's one way inviting more international universities to have campuses in their countries or emulating. But to get the reputation of a top university in the US or the UK for them in, in Bombay or, on, or Shanghai or whatever is a lot harder. But I think there's a lot more ideas being taken back east than they used to be. There's a definite desire to keep more of those tuition dollars in their own country. And that's, I think, going to be where we see more movement in the future. And that's why the the online courses are a a huge challenge to the existing bricks and mortar universities. Again, for the majority of people, because who can really afford just the Ivy League or the uh, Russell Group education in the future. Yeah, so I think that that there will always be a lot of exploration and campuses uh, happening in in the East, in Malaysia or Singapore or Hong Kong or China, maybe Oman. But huge new campuses setting up like Nottingham or NYU, I think that's going to be harder to sort of justify in the future because of the, the brilliance of these online platforms and the desire of governments in developing countries, realizing that they can take a, a share of this too, not just make a few developers and entrepreneurs wealthy. So when you talk about NYU, you're talking about the NYU Shanghai campus, where a student could go for all four years and get an NYU degree while never leaving China. Yes, exactly. And there's there's other people replicating that in different scales, but NYU is one of the one of the first and the biggest, and have spent the most. Put on your expert advisor hat. If you had a let's start with a wealthy Chinese investor. You had a wealthy Chinese investor come to you and say, Richard, where should I be investing? I love arts and creative education. Where's the future? What would you be telling? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I I would be looking at investing in a country and a company like Hyper Island in Stockholm, who has got the scope to grow and do more with digital platforms for creative programs. I think I'm looking at a company that is dealing with postgraduate master education, like Hyper Island in Stockholm, which I think is one of the one of the big ones to watch at the moment. Would you say the same thing to a Western investor? Yeah, to a Western investor, the ones that haven't had all these desires about opening schools in Malaysia or Singapore or, some, or Hong Kong. If you don't have one of the big brands, and you can't buy one of the big brands because of what they are, because they're, they're state institutions or semi-state institutions. I think there are going to be more ways to emulate Minerva or another digital platform. Someone could definitely come into the the art and design arena and develop top-level programs to do online. That would be something that would be worth throwing money at, I would say. So where's a good place for people to who want to follow the growth of educational technology and creative and arts education or the growth of the sector generally? What are some good resources for people to follow to, um, to stay abreast of what's happening? There's one that I like called the OHBE. They chart all the latest developments and people who are investing in campuses or starting programs. That's a UK-based organization in southern England. But then there are a lot of other uh, very interesting platforms uh, like Twitter that I follow, like EdSurge or Educational Investor. 
platforms where you see who's investing what and where and what, what are the big interests in, in digital education, online education. Let's finish up. I want you to look in your crystal ball and tell me, what are you excited about? I think in all this, and because of a project we were involved in together a few years ago, is, is this idea of disruption of the status quo of higher education. It's how important critical thinking and innovation will be in all spheres. In my little world of arts and design, education, and, and setting up international courses, what excites me and gives me hope is that what we can use, where we can bring critical thinking and innovation across the board and teach this to younger people that they, they can have a boldness and a fearlessness about thinking through problems and believing they can do things rather than following this sort of robotic way through performing on artificial ideas to pass standardized tests. Hope there will always be more space for people to think outside the box for eccentrics and for people who will find their own way to pursue new experiences outside the classroom and challenging and disrupting. These companies are challenging and disrupt the status quo in higher international education, the ones that I'm following and I want to be more involved in in the future. So for people who want to get in touch with you, maybe you should put a plug in for your contact information. How do people follow you and how can they uh, get a hold of you if they have more questions? I've got a website called Overseas Education Partners. Uh, I also have a, a Twitter site called Overseas Educate, finishing in E-D-U-C-A-T-E. Okay, well, well, this was great. I appreciate you doing this. This is interesting. I have to say, I'm pretty inspired by what's possible for creative and design education. Being in Shanghai, the experience the last year I've had has been to release a lot of the stereotypes that I thought were true about a lot of places, and at the moment, China, because uh, the majority of students at the, the schools where I'm working are turning out to not be interested in math, economics, and science, the STEM fields that are being so heavily touted in the U.S. and abroad as the future of jobs. And more and more students, the majority of students that I'm working with are fascinated and into designing creative and liberal arts pursuits. So it's kind of really, it's been inspirational to see students are going from these highly competitive countries like China and toward even more competitive higher education programs in the U.S. and doing transnational programs that are about our arts and creative education. It's been pretty inspiring for me too. It, it's just great that, you know, they, they are younger and wealthier, better educated kids, but they, they see their peers making money on YouTube or gaming or something like that. So it, their mind is spinning in a different way to the ways we were educated. Creativity and innovation, it's the base of all that. The latest things I read about China was that critical thinking as well as basic academic skills are very much considered important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this was great. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me today. I also want to thank all of you for listening. We do this every two weeks. This is our second podcast and we're very excited, Rich. I'm so excited, Richard, that you got to be my second guest. Uh, as always, an early adopter. Second Rail was produced and edited by Mary Heinz. Theme music was composed and performed by Ted Enley. Richard Young was one of the inspirations for the podcast in the first place. So I thank him for that as well. I'll be back in a fortnight with another show and look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, if you're listening 
listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd ask you to take a second click on the rating box. Every time we get a click of any kind of rating, it helps our position and makes it easier for people to find us on Apple. It would be even more amazing if you wrote a review, although that's completely unnecessary at this early stage. If you listen on Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or any one of those other platforms, uh, ratings help us enormously. We appreciate you listening and have a great fortnight.